0: Welcome to The Weed Podcast, where we explore the solutions to the world's most critical energy challenges. I'm your host, Victoria Kyo. The International Energy Agency released a report in 2021 outlining the critical role minerals will play in the energy transition. The report highlighted the startling mismatch between the world's climate ambitions and the availability of critical metals and minerals needed to realise a clean energy economy. Across two episodes, our experts will dig deeper into the future of mining, the key challenges the sector is facing, how it is becoming greener, and how mining will ultimately decarbonise the world. On our global panel today, I'm pleased to be joined by Mike Woloszuk, which Global Technical Leader for Mineral Processing, Julian Sparks, our Mining Strategy Lead, and David Blaker, our Mining Sector Leader for Environment and Infrastructure. Thank you all for joining me today. Rapidly grow clean energy technologies, in particular wind turbine and electric vehicles, our overall mineral and metal consumption is set to increase sixfold by 2040. I'm gonna put this question to you first, Mike. Is the mining sector ready to resource the energy transition?
1: I think you've touched on an interesting comment because you know the energy transition really starts and ends with metals production and it takes a long time to develop a mine, so uh, somewhere between 12 to 16 years from discovery to production. So we already know that, you know, the world is going to have to supply these metals and minerals at unprecedented levels, and uh, in order for that to happen, we need to start investing now in greenfield exploration drilling so that we can advance these projects through the pipeline and into production. So I think the challenge that the the world is going to face is
2: is meeting the, uh, the demand for these materials.
0: Julian, what's your take on it?
2: Victoria, if you're looking at metal production, what you need to think about in terms of a growth of a sector for the energy transition is the metals production has to go on top of the current metals production that we need in our world where we are industrializing Urbanizing. If you look at the amount of production that was required by China as they industrialized and urbanized, over the past two decades, it dramatically increased what was required from the world's metals producers. And remember that India hasn't really started yet, and neither has the continent of Africa. So there's a lot of growth yet to come. That growth, well, historically, for the past decade has been about between one and three percent annual growth in production, more or less, and that's set to increase based on the normal demands of industrialization and infrastructure plans, which will get us out of the COVID pandemic. But then if you add on top of that, all of the metals that are going to be required for energy transition um, activities, be it windmills, solar, electric cars, then you're going to need about four to five percent year on year growth on top of that existing growth. So, if you're looking at seven to eight percent year-on-year growth, that's massive. That's it's a huge amount of mines that have to be discovered, developed, brought into production to meet this demand, and it, it's terrifying.
0: Indeed, it is, David. I'm really keen to understand your perspective on this. <laughs>
3: there's just massive capital investment required. You know the, the 12 to 16 years means we need to be finding those those copper and nickel deposits now so that so that we have them in the 2030s. But even you know the, the projects that we know about now or the deposits that we know about now, if we were to push go on them now, you're, you're going to be five years to get them into production, which puts us pretty tight up against that 2030 deadline for, for those generally you know that timeline for the interim targets. And that's assuming that the mining um, you know, supply chain holds, right? In past booms, we've had problems getting things as basic as tires for heavy equipment, right? and, and we kept getting longer and longer lead times uh, for key pieces of processing equipment. And, and of course, we've got a personnel challenge as well.
0: Well, that leads us on to the issue of securing funding. Julian, given the financial scrutiny conventional energy markets are under, how do you secure the capital needed for these new developments that won't be viable for 12 to 16 years?
2: Um, So demand has gone crazy. And if you look at commodity prices, apart from being extremely volatile, everything's up to record levels. Copper's up, iron's up, um, even gas, coal are up. and that's the demand cycle i don't think the actual needs of decarbonization have filtered through have percolated yet to to the global economy and the understanding of what's really ne- what needs to happen and they're probably at the moment it would appear they're waiting for market forces to drive these projects through. So you'd see a huge increase in price driven by a remarkable increase in demand and production. It's not like, I don't know, old school where you have some facilities that are on care and maintenance just waiting for the day where a certain price reaches a certain level and you can turn the machine back on again and produce. These, These plants just aren't there. And it takes five years if you're ready to go. But a lot of cases, we've just come through a really dry, barren, low price period, six or seven years of suffering in mining, and the projects aren't ready to go. So we've got, there's going to be a huge demand crunch that nobody's really understood yet. But we're going to see dramatic changes when push comes to shove, when the demand crisis really kicks off in terms of key commodities, which is I'm thinking copper's going to go first copper and nickel but we'll see
3: you, you know if you come back to the question of of finance you know coming out of cop26 it was the glasgow finance alliance for net zero and that's really driving you know all of the investment banks to back projects that are that are net zero or zero carbon so you've you've also got competition within the mining industry for that capital investment, a lot of the major companies, I think almost all of the major mining companies have have put out targets for 2030, 2040, uh, 2050. Some pick 2030, some pick 2040, but pretty much everyone's got a target for zero by 2050. So a lot of the capital they're investing now is to get them towards those carbonization targets, decarbonization targets. Um, and then you still have to have the capital to do the expansion. And, and that investment for decarbonization, I mean, it, it's it, in a lot of ways, it's not easy.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's become apparent more recently that the mining industry is is going to be important in solving the climate challenges that we have going forward. So in terms of accessing capital, I think it's going to be linked to some sustainability targets and, and com- companies that provide financing, such as BlackRock, uh, you know, made announcements that uh, in order to secure financing, the ASG programs have to align uh, with their goals.
0: So we've covered off funding, but that's not all that's needed to secure the future of these mining developments. Notwithstanding the supply chain issues, there's also a talent squeeze. How do we retain and attract the next generation of miners?
1: I think you're going to see a shift, uh, Victoria, you know, uh, what's historically been an antiquated manual operating model for most of the mining industry is going to change to something that's uh, more technology driven rather than human driven. So the industry is going to require a new skill set. And I think that's going to attract people to work in the industry, as well as the fact that, uh, you know, they'll they'll look at the mining industry and, and, and understand that this is part of the uh, process necessary to to solve some of the climate challenges and I think scientists, engineers um, like solving problems um, and, and I think that's one way to attract the industry. Yeah, and,
3: and, you know, it, it's not just the engineers, right? I mean, so we, we've got the miners and we, we often think kind of that business end of, of mining, of, of getting the rock out of the ground and getting it processed. Well, there's, you know, there's there's truck drivers, there's engineers, there's electricians, there's, you know, chemical and process engineers, but, you know, there's archaeologists. Um, we need writers, we need people to convert the stuff that the engineers do into what I call, you know, common language that other people can understand, um, you know, kind, kind of like my doctor has to explain the complex medical things to me. We need someone to take what the engineers do and, and explain it um, to, to people. Uh, we need so, so we need those community engagement specialists and we need archaeologists and we need socioeconomic people so that we can you know, measure what's going on, what, what our effect is in the environment on socioeconomic and make sure that we get the correct mitigation Um Plans in place, or 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 the plans that allow us to do the best uh, multiplication of the uh, of the economic benefits that we can. So we we need a, a wide range of of people in the industry,
2: and that's essentially the problem that we have at the moment. Is mining ain't cool. It's working for Amazon is cool. Working for Facebook is cool, and that's what we need to change. Now it's it's good. It has to be our customers. It has to be us. The the EPCMs. Uh, across the board, we have to be a, an industry that attracts talented people and then retains them. Um, uh, it, this is an essential industry for decarbonisation of the world.
0: We're increasingly witnessing geopolitical tensions and the strengthening of alliances between certain countries. How is this playing out and shaping the mining sector?
2: This is about the end of globalization, which the the era of globalization ended towards the end of our previous decade. And we're now seeing um, the growth of sort of pacts or groups of countries working together um, and working against each other, in a sense, competing, whereas before it was just free trade. And one of the key forces that we're seeing there is the movement of China and against China. So the Chinese moved well before anyone else on lithium and rare earth metals, and they are in, uh, they're in the best position at the moment. Now, you're starting to see other countries starting to move against that to secure supply. It's, if we're, you know, there is the realization people have seen the report by the by the International Energy Agency on how much metal is needed, and they're not willing to be held ransom through, you know, be it crazy tariffs or well, essentially what is happening now, which is this is a global uh, trade war, sort of being uh, minerals are being held ransom, um, and can, well you're seeing like well Canada and the united states particularly are moving to become self-sufficient the united kingdom as well and you can see alliances forming in terms of particularly those three i just named but as this develops more will join sides and we will have hopefully a movement towards the balance of supply and demand Mm
3: Yeah, Julian, I mean, I think, you know, we're in the industry. And, and when I read that IEA report, one of the things that really, really surprised me is just the strong degree of concentration that there is in the, in the metals industry for some of these critical metals. And it goes not just where they're mined, but the concentration gets even greater when you look at where they're smelted and refined. Um, you know, just how... How concentrated that is in in a just a few countries
2: that's absolutely right, and that's also one of the advantages it's of the decarbonization now that they 've got green steel this is something that we didn't have ten years ago where you use hydrogen as opposed to using coal to to create steel from iron ore, which is a great advancement which means that countries that previously would have said absolutely no chance we're having a smelter in this country because it Contaminates. There's a huge carbon footprint. They might say, "Okay, let's do it." The other part, you know, just the 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 production where the minerals are. That's just geology. It's volcanoes make copper, and that's why it's in Chile and Peru and the you know the Ring of Fire.
0: If we circle back to the first question on meeting the demands of the energy transition. The IEA report suggests that minerals is the new face of energy security. How do we ensure then that there is a reasonable dialogue around mining when it comes to the energy transition? Because it sounds like we can't achieve net zero without mining. While also ensuring companies are adopting the most sustainable and responsible pathways to limit their impact.
1: If you um, believe some of the reports uh, that that, uh, are coming out in Wood Mac, is is one that i'll refer to if you look at the demand of copper alone in order to meet net zero 2050 they talk about 19 million tons of additional copper that's needed to deliver that by 2050 and uh, the largest copper mine in the world is escondida and that uh, basically equates to a new escondida that must be discovered and entered into production every year for the next 20 years to meet that increase in demand so you know even if you just focus on copper you know their message was that uh, net zero 2050 has a zero chance and so i think that really puts it in perspective we need the investment to happen now in greenfield exploration uh we you know the, the deposits are getting more challenging uh in more remote places in in political jurisdictions that, that have additional challenges so Lots of technical challenges, geopolitical risk, and in order for us to supply the demand required, it has to start now.
2: There's been a call for a while now to unify the the global database of mineral resources. So you know what it is, you know who owns the rights, you know everything, and it's out there in the public domain. And to give everybody the chance to democratize minerals and develop them in the best way possible which is you know it, you have to think about cost it's we have to do projects and operations that are efficient in terms of how much it costs to get the stuff out the ground otherwise it just adds cost onto the the, the final product and we need to be able to work as a I don't know about the the global factions, but at least as partial global units, developing these resources and finding the best way possible to get the stuff out the ground.
3: The challenge is that we can't pass extraterritorial laws for for human rights or or better conditions or environmental conditions in in countries beyond our borders. And this is this is part of the problem with the oil and gas industry as well. Is is you know they're they're countries that produce a lot of oil and gas that that have some some human rights issues um and we want to avoid that in mining if if we can get that through you know the principles for responsible investing through the um through the investment community and if we can somehow come up with a way where we can get you know a number where consumers can make a decision you know consumers will Pick to buy. They they will pay some more money for products that are environmentally and socially responsible. So we we need a we need a common system to score those things, so that our consumers can make um, you know a, a, the right decisions on it, and so that investors know which product uh, projects they want to back. Because a lot of the a lot of that smelting and refining capacity that we lost, we lost. Uh, going to jurisdictions with lower pollution standards. and we need a way to equalize that to to see it and to and to equalize it and then and then bring it back. and I, I think we'll I think we'll get there. I think people are willing to pay that money for it. So that would be my uh, that would be on my wish list is is a good, consistent, transparent scoring system that you know bankers and consumers can use.
1: And I think that's an important point, David. You know, we look at um, the the industry looks at what what makes a good mine, and we and we focus on the cash curve. You know, if, if the cost curve. So if you're in the lower quartile, uh, you have a large margin to to see metal prices drop, and and the, you know you're still confident that the asset's going to generate cash. We need the same type of scorecards with regards to energy consumption, emissions. Uh, and, and I think if we put the focus on those scorecards as important as, as generating cash, then I think people can look at, at assets and at, at companies and, and uh, you know decide for themselves about a projects uh, you know that, that have the metrics they want to, to support.
0: Thank you all so much for your valued insight. Join us next time where we'll be exploring green mines as well as the innovations and solutions that we're already deploying to modernize and decarbonize mining operations. If you would like to connect with today's guests or browse related insights, please visit woodplc.com podcast, where you can also subscribe to our latest podcasts. I'd like to say a big thanks to our listeners for taking the time to join us today. Until next time, please take care.